one of the most important books of the Bible. Uh, it tells us where we came from, how to walk here, and where we're headed. If you were to take Ephesians and you split it down the middle and you put on one side, if you took a piece of paper and you put the first three chapters on the left and the fourth, fifth, and sixth chapter on the right, and you'd find in those first three chapters of how uh, or, or who we are. And the second is how to walk since we find out who we are. Uh, in those first three chapters, we find out that we're a royal priesthood and we're peculiar people. We are God's family, God's sons. We, we are God's children. We have been adopted. We've been chosen. And you get on to the next three chapters, you find out what to do with all those truths about who we are. Uh, sometimes we identify ourselves based on our income or our education, uh, our marital status, um, whether things are going good or, back and good or bad, and that becomes our identity. But according to the Word of God, our identity has to be found in Christ, in Him. And those first three chapters teach us how that we can find our identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. I know who I am, and I know I am who I am. As Paul said in Corinthians, I am who I am because of the Lord Jesus Christ and His grace. And so it doesn't matter what man says about me. I'm not interested, don't care. Uh, I don't, I don't, I'm like Paul. I don't try to please people. I'm not a people pleaser. Uh, it doesn't bother me if somebody attacks me or anything. That just, it's just like water off my back. It just, I don't need it. There was a time in my life I needed people's approval, needed people's acceptance, especially in the pastorate ministry, that I needed people to like me. And God began to show me that then I began to preach to the needs of the people and, that, and not the needs of what they need spiritually, but the fact that uh, I needed to preach so they would like me. And so I began to pick and choose what I would say so that they would like me. I got over that. <laughs> and it hadn't been that, it's, it's been a while now since I got over that. I'm going to preach what the Word of God says, whether you like it or not. And uh, I shared with Sunday school class this morning, I'll share it with you in the church, that every place I've ever been, every area I go to, not just the church, but every area I go to, there's a specific stronghold. The stronghold over the, the area I'm going to in Pensacola and Navarre area is a sexual stronghold. It's a stronghold that uh, the churches are filled with young people that are shacking up together. And they can come and raise their hands and sing and praise God, but they find no problems with sexual immorality whatsoever. Uh, that's a stronghold over an area that has come into the body of Christ. In this area, it's an unteachable attitude. It's a spirit of rebellion. Pastor, we don't care what you preach as long as you preach what we already believe. We'll believe everything you say as long as you say what we already believe comes from rebellion, comes from the word witchcraft, it means stiff-necked, quick to bow the back. I've seen it in this church, I saw it this morning. It's a stiff-necked spirit. It's a spirit that needs to be broken in the church before the church can ever grow. Over McCullough County where I was there, 
It was a spirit of Python. When you go into Acts, and Paul talked about uh, the church there, he said that uh, when uh, this lady had the spirit of divination, and she was selling, it was in the church, it was in the city of Ephesus, and, and uh, it was selling these, these articles of idolatry and the spirit of woman of spirit of divination. If you look up the Greek word divination, and it means python. It's for the snake, python. It's a spirit that comes in around the church, around the spiritual life of a church, and squeezes the life out of it to the point that they feel like they can't even breathe. I preached that in Wakulla. That spirit attacked me, and I was in the hospital emergency room over and over. I couldn't get my breath. I felt like my ribs were being broke. I didn't know what it was. And this was in 1996 when God showed me the spirit and I began to preach it. See, when you identify spirit, it starts attacking you. Every place I've ever been to identify the spirit, it attacks. And guess who it uses to attack? Essence, yeah. And so I was in and out of the hospital and they kept saying, I said, my ribs, they're I said, I wake up in the middle of the night and it feels like I'm, my ribs are being crushed. I, I can't breathe. The doctor checked me and he could say, and he, and, he, and he annotated, my ribs were being bruised. He said, did you fall? I said, no. He said, anybody hit you? I said, no. He said, your ribs are bruised. I called in some intercessors and we walked around the church. They prayed over me. We walked around the church. We broke, finally broke the stronghold over our church of that spirit of divination, spirit of religious, it's called religious witchcraft. That's the Python spirit. It's religious witchcraft. They want religion. But all their belief system was assigned, it was twisted, not to give God glory, but to give the enemy glory. And that was within the church. We broke that sucker. Started having revival in the church. I wrote up a whole article on everything in the Bible, in the Old Testament, New Testament, against the Python spirit and the religious witchcraft. And I took it to all the pastors in the county. And every one of them attacked me and said I was out of my mind. So I was crazy. I said, here's the scriptures. We don't want those. Some of them were like ostriches. They believe if you stick your head in the sand, don't mention demons, they'll leave, them, you'll leave you alone. Now, y'all believe that? It's not scriptural. It says he's seeking whom he may devour. And an ostrich with his head in the sand is easy prey. Some taught that all the demons are already bound in hell. They can't hurt us because Jesus has already put them all in hell. So there are no more demons left on the earth. You believe that? If you do, you don't believe in scriptures. <laughs> Some don't believe Christians can be affected in any way, shape, or form by demonic strongholds. Hmm. And so the strongholds in this city, the stronghold, which is we've seen it in a lot of the churches, stronghold over this church, somewhere along the line, the body, we need to take a stand, fasting and prayer. Jesus said this kind comes out through much prayer and fasting. You go back in the history of this church, you can see that rebellion manifested right in the walls of these, these four walls. You can see that stiff neck, just operating. As long as it's bound in the county, it's going to affect all the Christians. But as long as it's bound in this church, it's going to affect every person who walks in its doors unless we know how to walk with the full armor of God. 
And it can't be something that's just quoted. It's something that's put on. It's something that we know how to stand in. And unless we know how to sit and walk and stand, unless we know how to sit in heavenly places, how to stand in that place with God, to sit in heavenly places, stand in faith, stand in grace, we won't know how to use the armor that's listed in Ephesians chapter 6. Just become some Bibles, read some cute words we, we quote. And then I asked the last time that you took a demon's head off at the shoulders with that armor. Oh, it, we, we just got the whole armor of God on. That's why. It's an offensive tool. It's not a defensive tool. It's an offensive tool where we take the land and possess the gates of our city. But you can't possess the gates of the city until you possess the gates of your church. And you can't do the church unless we possess the gates of our own body. And Paul told us in Timothy, learn to possess your own soul as vessels of honor. It's got to start in here. We've got to be able to stand that I can walk in holiness and righteousness. But if we're stiff-necked and rebellious people, we see wrong in everybody else except us. We're ready to criticize everyone else except our own self. It's why we have revival service. It's not just so that we can have something different in September that we haven't had before. We need to take a look at ourselves. And if you're not going to listen to me, I hope that you'll listen to somebody else that'll come in and hear it. Ouch. Ephesians chapter 1. We'll start with uh, verse 11 and move down. I've preached a little bit of this in previous in the evenings. In verse 11, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. That we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. In whom you also trusted after that you have heard the word of truth. The gospel of your salvation. In whom also after that you believed you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. One of the terms that continues to repeat through the book of Ephesians, one of the key words is a little preposition word, in. The preposition in. In verse 1, it says, in Christ Jesus. And right on through the book of, of Ephesians, it talks about in Christ Jesus. It's one thing to have Jesus Christ in me, but it talks about in John, us abiding in him, learning to live in him. This is not a Sunday morning, go to church, feel good service. I don't preach feel good services. I'm not interested in us feeling good. I'm interested in us learning to abide in him, be in him. Why? For the praise of his glory. Another phrase in the book of Ephesians that is constant over and over for the praise of his glory. I'm not here for my praise. I don't care if anybody shakes my hand and says, good sermon preacher. That doesn't interest me. God, did I please you? God, are you glorified in it? God, am I preaching your word? The whole life of the Christian is not for us. It never was for us. It was never for our sake. It's always been for him. The reason Jesus saved you wasn't for you. 
I'm going to say it again. The whole reason Jesus saved you wasn't for you. It was for him. God saved you for himself. For his praise. He was sitting in heaven. He's got all of, and, and even before heaven, there was no heaven. Can you imagine? There was no heaven. There was just God. And he pulled out of himself a place that he could dwell and call home, and he called it heaven. There wasn't even heaven. He just dwelled as himself, God. There was nothing but God. And he created the heaven to dwell in. And then he said, I'm going to make the heavens and earth. And he said, then I'm going to make man. And I'm going to make man because for my sake. I want them to love me because. And he poured everything out that we need. First, he gave us his word. Second, he gave us the Lord Jesus Christ. Third, he gave us the Holy Spirit. All that we need to bring praise and glory to him has been imparted to us. We don't need anything else. We don't need a preacher preaching on Sunday morning to give him glory. We don't need to sing to give him glory. All we need to do is to be in him, in Christ. And we give him glory. Well, in Christ, there's nothing that resembles sin. You can't bring sin in the spirit. When I walk in the flesh, it says that I manifest and fulfill the deeds of the flesh. He says, but when I walk in the spirit, I cannot fulfill the deeds of the flesh. I put to death the deeds of the flesh. When I, when I die to myself and I'm walking in the spirit, I cannot sin. You cannot be in the spirit and in the flesh at the same time. When we're walking in the Spirit of God, absolutely with the flag of surrender up, saying, God, it's not about me. It's not my will. It's not what I want. And I'm most likely wrong. I don't want God on my side. My side's not the winning side. I want to be on his side. His side's always the winning side. In him is, is no room for failure. In him is nothing but victory. When I'm in him, I'm in victory. Said, God, I want you to come here on my side. I want you to bless this. And, and we're asking him to bless some of our mess and with our sins and with our rebellion. And we, we want him to sign his name. I like the Westinghouse motto. I'm a motto man. I, I go back and memorize all these mottos through life, you know, and the Pepsi motto and the, and the Coke motto and, 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 and all of them, the radio uh, shack, you know, motto. Uh, if you've got questions, I've got answers. But Westinghouse says the quality must go in before the name goes on. In other words, you want God to sign his name across your life, then the quality of his character has got to go in. Before the name will go on. If you want his name signed across your life. See, I can look at some people and I say, man, that person's a Christian. Man, I just see it. I can see God's name signed across it. I know they're saved. And some people, pastoring them for 10 years, I'm going, I know they tell me saved, but I have never seen anything that resembles Jesus Christ. Ever. When they open their mouth, I don't hear Jesus. When they do their actions, I don't see Jesus. There's nothing 
that, just, that resembles the Lord Jesus Christ in the life. The first thing we talked about, God has revealed the Father's will to us, and we talked about that, and then we got into verse 11, that he's made us an inheritance, and that we are his inheritance. He has an inheritance he made for us, and we are his. Now, aren't you glad he has an inheritance for us? Amen. Aren't you glad for that? Now, and now, listen, most of the inheritance God has for us is on this side of eternity. We just haven't grabbed that yet. We just think it's all in the sky, fly away, all by my, all that, you know. And stuff that, hey, bless God. Okay, listen, everybody has eternal life. Every person on the face of the earth has got eternal life. Some, most of them are going to be eternally in hell. But the rest of us, that's, that's going to be life too. They're going to spend eternity in hell. They're not going to cease to exist. Okay, we've got eternal life with God. See, I like to put that eternal life with God. Not just eternal life. Eternal life with God. Not in heaven. In the new Jerusalem. On the new earth, the new city, it's where I'm going to spend eternity. However, what's my eternity here? What has he done here? Well, we talked about, um, in, we went into John 17, uh, Wednesday night, was it? That we went for about an hour. We were way over, over time in John 17. And, uh, but we want to get into Ephesians 1, 22. Look at 22 and 23. And hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body and the fullness of him. Listen, can I tell you this? We are Christ's body. This building can never be Christ's body. Uh, and we can never be Christ's body unless we're in him. In him. If you're in Christ, then you're part of his body. Now, my finger is attached to my hand, attached to my wrist and my arm and my shoulder, but ultimately, it's the head. My finger is, is not made to move on its own. It must have function that's controlled and dictated by the brain. My brain tells my finger, move. And so, we are Christ's body, and according to that 22 and 23, uh, uh, he is the head. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, it says, Now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners. Bless God. I'm not a stranger to God. At one time I was a stranger to God. He says, You're no longer strangers. You're no longer foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and the household of God and built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple of the Lord in whom you also are built together for the habitation of God through the Spirit. Now, in the revival time, we hope that when Tory comes, Pastor, uh, he's actually a doctor, so Dr. Blackman, he's uh, got his doctorate's degree in theology. Uh, I put pastor out there, and I asked him if that was okay, because some guys who have a doctor's degree want to be called Dr. Blackman. And, uh, but when he comes, uh, I, I, I pray that the Spirit of God moves and that, that we're convicted in things that we need to repent of, what we'll repent of, and that we'll learn how to live in him. However, when he leaves, you know, we got to make sure that we didn't have just a visitation. Now, I like my woman. She's homesick right now. But if she lived over with Tommy and only visited me, I would not like that. 
I'm glad she lives with me and visits Tommy. She has habitation on 208 Ellis Van Bleet Street, and she visits Navarre. Now, with God, many times, uh, we, get, we get satisfied with a visitation. Anybody here ever had a visitation of God? You ever been sitting there, and all of a sudden, the music or the preaching and the Spirit of God just goes, whew, across, and you, and you goosebumps get goosebumps, and the hair on the back of your head raises up, and you get this, what I call the liver shiver, and the doodads, and the goosebumps. Had it been there, done that. That's called a visitation. That's when the wind, the wind, the wind of the Spirit goes. Now, don't you like that? I like, if you've never had it, you need to, you need to go in your prayer closet and say, Lord, I want a visitation. But now here's what it says. It says that when we learn, we learn to get into him. That's the whole reason Paul's writing this. We live in him. It says that we're like bricks. We, we're, we're sitting down and, and, and Patrick lays his life down. And I lay mine down. We just kind of hook together like the, uh, those old, dove, is it dovetail? What are they called? Dovetail joints. And they link together. Then the next one sits down and they link together. Next one. And next thing you know, we have built not just the body of Christ. We've built the building of Christ for the habitation of God. And God just comes in and says, I think I'll just hang out right there. And then we leave and we come back in and the presence of God is still in here. That's what they had in the temple. The presence of God. They built that little tabernacle out there in the middle of the wilderness in the desert. And, and God says, I want you to build this and I want you to build this little box three foot by foot and a half and I want you to, to make it with gold inlaid and everything. And, and in fact, when you, when you study the way it's made, it represents, it represents like, like Christ down on the cross, the way it's, way it's made. It's just a Amazing on the Ark of the Covenant in the mercy seat. And he said, I want you to put it in this room that's 15 foot square. And, and he said, then put all these blankets and stuff over it and nobody can go back there. And, and they did everything they did. And then they made Aaron the high priest. And all of a sudden, here it comes from heaven. The fire of God. And he dwelled in a box. He just didn't visit it. He lived there. And on all four sides, north side, east, and west, there were certain, there were three tribes there, three tribes there, three tribes there, three tribes there. And each one had their own part. They had the musicians on one and the praisers on the other. They had the, the, the people who did all the work on one. And, and so everybody had a part in the Levitical priesthood. They were, they were kind of scattered around and their job was to come in and, and do all the Levitical work. But God dwelled there. And then years and years later, that temple was no longer needed, and they built a tabernacle, and they built a temple. It has seven huge menorahs inside that thing. It was massive. It's one of the 